express our gratitude for Olivia and her willingness to share um, and her courage to share part of her story with us. And as I watch that, I don't know about you, there's a number of emotions that I experience. But one of the things that I'm just reminded of is that there isn't a weekend that goes by where somebody doesn't join us either in person or online, maybe for the very first time, who has no idea what's going on. And man, they're looking for hope. And uh, we want to be ready to give it to them. And I just want to welcome you uh, wherever you are joining us from. And uh, so glad to have you with us. If you have a Bible, go ahead and uh, get to the end of Romans chapter 5. That's where we left off last week. We're going to finish up chapter 5 and we're going to cover... Uh, all of chapter six. I've actually got way more material than I had time for. And then uh, next week, we'll uh, unpack chapter seven. And chapter six and seven kind of fit together. And I think you'll see uh, what I mean by that here in just a few minutes. Um, This uh, past summer, uh, our family uh, took a bucket list trip vacation to Hawaii. We've always wanted to take our kids. Lindsay and I, um, when we got married way back in the late 1900s, we, uh, we honeymooned in Hawaii, and uh, we'd always wanted to go back, take our kids. Our kids have always wanted to go. Our son was getting ready to head off to college this fall, so we were like, this summer's the time to do it. And we had an amazing trip, all kinds of great experiences. One of the, honestly, the best family vacations that I think we've ever had. Uh, but one of the uh, highlights for me personally was I got to take my 17-year-old daughter, Campbell, scuba diving. And uh, the resort that we were staying at, they were offering this, and neither one of us are certified, but we uh, started off in uh, the swimming pool, uh, you know, just blowing bubbles. And then we ended up progressing into the deep end of the pool and then eventually made our way into the ocean. And uh, we uh, ended up going down for over an hour down to the bottom of the ocean. We saw some amazing things, a sea turtle and a puffer fish and just some incredible things. But I gotta be really, really honest with you. Like I was trying to be brave, but I was so nervous. And it, and it happened, I was fine until I like looked up. And when I looked up, I, I felt, I had just this sensation of being buried alive. Like it was like, it is a long way up there. And if anything goes wrong with my mask or the oxygen tank, like I'm in trouble. And I was trying, like every now and then I'd like look over at my daughter to see how she was doing. And it was really discouraging because she was like cool as a cucumber. Like I'd look over at her like, you know, you okay? And she'd be like, she give me one of these. Like I'm having a great time, dad. And I'm like, yeah, yeah me too. Like I'm... I'm having a great time. And I just, here's the deal. I just didn't want to be that guy in the group that would freak out and pull everybody else's mask off. Like I didn't want to be that person. And, and part of what triggered the anxiety for me is that when I was down at the bottom, I recalled this story that I'd read years ago. I'd totally forgotten about it until this moment about an experienced diver who had uh, uh, had some oxygen deprivation due to the depths that he was diving at. And so he got disoriented and thought up was down and down was up. And so when it came time for him to resurface, when the oxygen tanks were running low, he thought he was swimming up, but in reality, he was swimming down and he ran out of oxygen and he died. And that was the moment that I recalled that story. (laughs) Now, what we've been doing in this series together is we've been walking through the book of Romans, which in essence is Paul helping us see that we all experience like a different kind of disorientation. Not a necessarily a physical one, although it can affect us physically, but more a spiritual disorientation where we end up thinking up is down and down is up. The way that he's been describing it is we can exchange the truth of God for a lie. That we um, aim our affections, my favorite definition for worship, towards created things rather than creator God. So the prophet Isaiah would say, we, we call good evil and evil good. And so throughout this study in Romans, Paul is recalibrating our internal compasses back to true north. And we've said that true north really is representative of two things. It is the gospel message and the voice of Jesus. That we want to follow after Jesus in every area of our lives as Lord and not just see him as Savior. Now, if you're just now joining us, by way of review, Paul is writing this letter to a group of people living in Rome that are really not so different than you and me, and they have experienced something very similar to what you and I have experienced in the last couple of years. A massive crisis that disrupted their lives that then led to anger, anxiety, and division. Just what we've been through in the last couple of years. And so Paul writes them this letter and he says, let me remind you of what the gospel message is. Because you are an influential church 
that is going to have influence around the Middle East. Now, where we left off last week, if you were with us, um, at the end of chapter 5, is Paul giving us at least part of the explanation for why life is so hard. He gave us a reason for why we have abuse and trauma. Why we have infertility issues and miscarriage. Why we have COVID and cancer. He says the reason why we're experiencing these things, at least in part, is because we are under the curse of what he called the first Adam. So we go all the way back to the Garden of uh, Eden in, in the beginning of Genesis, and Adam's sinful decision opened up the door for pain and suffering in this world. If you were here, I, I gave this uh, definition of original sin. We kind of talked about that term. And original sin is not just a sin that nobody else has ever thought up. You're the first one to have that kind of mind to commit that sin. That, that's not original sin. Original sin means that even though you and I were not physically in the garden with Adam and Eve, physically taking part in the forbidden fruit, God still holds us liable for their decision because we have ratified their decision over and over and over again in our lives, if we're being honest. And that hardly seems fair. However, it's also not fair that Jesus, as our second representative Adam, went to a cross on our behalf. I wasn't there either for that. Like I didn't have to literally be nailed to a Roman cross, thankfully. And yet Jesus did so on our behalf. And now he transfers, or to use a financial term, he credits his righteousness to our account. Somebody should respond to that. That's like so, so good, all right? So thank, too late now, all right, too late now. All right, so, so where we left off last week is that Jesus has reversed the curse. Now what that means, this is what some theologians call the already but not yet, meaning God has already won the victory and yet he has not yet returned to restore this world to what it was intended to be. We're in the middle. So that means that we have an enemy, Satan, who is still limited in his dominion over the world. He's mortally wounded, but limited in his reach. I don't know if this is a helpful metaphor or not. It kind of helps me. It's this idea that Satan is like a mortally wounded animal. Like to say he's like a dog with rabies. He's chained up. He's still roaming around. There's a certain radius that he can roam, but he, he, there's an extent to his reach. You get anywhere near him, though, he's going to bite you. Like your relationships, your marriage if you're married, your kids if you have kids, your mental and emotional health, all of that stuff is right in his crosshairs and he's trying to take it down, which is why all those things that are worthwhile in life are complicated, require lots of effort and energy and work because there's an enemy behind the scenes who is trying to take all those things down. And we oftentimes blame God for all the pain and suffering in this world and we fail to recognize there's an enemy behind the scenes. This is why Peter would say to us in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, he would go, stay alert. In other words, keep your head on a swivel. Like, don't fall asleep at the wheel. Watch out for your great enemy. And then he names him, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. What that means is that you and I can go nose to nose with him not because of willpower, but because of God's power that is at work within us. And now we're getting at to the subject of the day. If you're taking notes, you might write down this summary because we're going to finish up kind of a, there's a big transition here. We're finishing up the first five chapters. So chapters one through five of Romans is Paul's explanation of what God has accomplished for us through Jesus. Now, chapters six and seven, what we're going to be in for the next few weeks is Paul explaining what God will now accomplish in us. Like we're talking about our interior lives through Jesus. And as we wrap up the last few verses of chapter five and jump into all of chapter six, Paul is going to address something that I don't know about you, but I've always wondered about and I've always wrestled with as I've sort of grown up, uh, you know, in church. And I think this is especially going to be true for many of you that have grown up in church. But even if you didn't, you've probably thought about this in some fashion. But really, uh, I could summarize it maybe into, into this question. And I'm just wondering if anybody can identify with me. Have you ever had a moment in your life where you just stopped and you thought, why 
am I not making any more progress in my personal and spiritual growth than I am? Any of you ever just been frustrated with where you're at in life? Like you're like, you know what, man, I thought by the age of 30, I wouldn't be wrestling with this, with this anymore, but I am. Or I thought by the age of 40, or I thought by the age of 50, I'd finally kind of see that particular struggle that I've been facing kind of in the rearview mirror, but I haven't. And it's really discouraging. See, spiritual growth is not um, like up and to the right. It's more like peaks and valleys. Um, three steps forward, two and a half, maybe even three and a half steps back. And that can get really frustrating. Maybe you thought that you had a handle on your anger and then you lost your cool once again and you said something to people that you love that you didn't mean. Maybe you thought that you uh, were getting kind of uh, your pride reined in, but you exaggerated the truth once again at dinner with friends and on the way home, your spouse very kindly pointed it out. And that is merely a hypothetical that has not happened in my life. <laughs> maybe, maybe, you, maybe you were like, thought that you'd finally pin down your insecurity, but you got defensive once again whenever somebody at work just gave you some honest feedback so you'd get better. And you were like a racquetball wall. They just couldn't give you anything. He just bounces right off of you and goes right back to them. You thought that you had a handle on your lust, but you allowed yourself to go there once again. And now you just feel so ashamed. Why do certain temptations have such a grip on me? Why do I still keep self-destructing? Like I've gone to counseling and I've read the book and I've listened to the message series and, and I've gone to the retreat. So why at this point in my life as a grown adult, why don't I love God more than I do? Why am I not more any more generous than I am? Why am I not eager to talk about my faith with a stranger sitting next to me on the plane? Why, if I'm being honest, don't I care more about people? And if you've wrestled with any of those issues and you'd be lying if you hadn't, we can relate to Paul. Because I think that you're gonna find chapters six and seven really encouraging because this is Paul identifying with those struggles. In fact, next week in chapter seven, Paul says something that I've always resonated with. He goes, why is it that I really just don't understand myself? Like the things that I want to do, I don't. And the things I don't want to do, I keep on doing. Now here's the deal. You and I will not have recalibration in our lives until we get a real understanding of how formation works. And I hope that you've been getting to catch that that is a mega theme in this series that we've been in. That word formation. I just want you to get so familiar with it. Uh, you, we, could, we could talk about spiritual formation, but really the idea is like, um, who am I being formed into? It's the question of character. It's the question of personal daily disciplines. It's the question of my daily choices and decisions. And what I want you to see is that you and I both, we are day by day being formed into the image and likeness of something or someone. The question is, are we aware of it? And are we intentionally making decisions to be formed into the right person? Now, here's the thing, is that if you are a follower of Jesus, then your primary aim should be that I am going to be formed into the image and likeness of Jesus. That, I, that my lifetime is an opportunity to develop more Christ-like character within me so that I'm ready and prepared to spend an eternity with him. Now, I wanna be really, really clear about something. You are saved by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus alone, period. You can't add anything more to that. What that means is that if you are a follower of Jesus, in fact, it is a free gift that God gives to you. Jesus has done the work on your behalf. Now the Bible tells us there are four tangible things that we do to receive that free gift of salvation. They are not works. They are what you do to respond to the work. You believe that Jesus is God's son. You wanna follow him out as Lord and savior. He went to a cross on your behalf. You went into a grave, defeated death, so you can defeat death one day too. You, you, um, you confess you, you just, I'm not gonna hide my sin anymore. I'm not gonna make excuses for it anymore. I'm just gonna get that stuff out in the open. I'm gonna be authentic. You repent, which means turn around and then you're baptized. And we'll get to the explanation of that in a minute. None of those things are work. They are a response to the work that God has done on your behalf. Now you've done all those things. Your salvation is secure. 
you do not fall in and out of God's grace, thankfully. There is no need for you to do as somebody who has told you recently to baptize yourself 16 times in the neighborhood pool, right? You just, you, you don't have to do that anymore. Like you, you're, so from that position, you have confidence to now move forward and say, I wanna be formed more and more into the image and likeness of Jesus. Not because I'm trying to earn something, but because I'm trying to become someone. I'm trying to allow the character of Jesus to come through me. Is that clear? Like, I know that is really dense stuff, but I'm trying to be as clear as I can. Apparently not. All right, so, so we're gonna jump in. Verse five, or chapter five, verse 20. We gotta back up to get a running start into chapter six. Paul's gonna go back to the law. He says, God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. Remember who he's writing to again. He's writing to Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians who are fighting primarily because the Jewish Christians kept wanting to impose the law on the Gentile Christians. They would say, yes, it's Jesus and fill in the blank. And so Paul's writing to combat that. Now for our context today, he's, all, he's obviously talking about the Old Testament law, but he's also talking about all the rules. All the, and maybe some of you just thought, well, Christianity is just a bunch of rules, like stuff that I got to do to confine who I am and confine all my fun so that, you know, I, God will accept me. And that is a drastic misunderstanding of the gospel. He is saying that the law is here not as a checklist of things that you check off so that you're good to go to heaven one day. The law is simply a mirror. It just shows you how sinful you are, how you could never actually follow through on checking off all those things and how much we need a savior. The law does not create sin in us. It simply reveals it. Following Jesus is not about keeping the rules. We couldn't possibly do so if we tried. Thankfully, Paul continues and he says in verse 20, but just as people sin more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, if I could summarize that whole paragraph in one sentence, I'd say this. What that means is you cannot out God's grace. Man, that's, now, some of you are trying, all right, but, but you can't, all right? So it, I always get, get kind of like choked up whenever I invite somebody to church, like, oh man, you wouldn't want me coming to your church preacher. Like if I walked through the doors, the roof would cave in. And I'm like, man, you are giving yourself way too much credit. You are not that good of a sinner. God's grace will always outmatch it. However, now for some of us, for those of you that maybe didn't clap, for those of you that are maybe ones or fives on the Enneagram, those of you that are all justice oriented, like, you know, it's all about justice. You've probably got this question. All right, well, if good behavior is worthless, then why be good at all? Right, like if you're saved by grace, I mean, that makes me a little bit nervous, Aaron, because that feels like we're just kind of giving people license to live however they want. Won't people take advantage of that grace? And Paul anticipates that. Which is why he responds to this rhetorical question that he wrote in chapter six, verse one. Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? That should be the natural question that any of us would have as we come to this point in our study of Romans. Because for the first five chapters, Paul has been doing an incredible job arguing that salvation is a free gift that comes to all who receive it. Every other world religion teaches the exact opposite. So if you've ever thought, if you've read, or if you've heard that essentially all religions are the same, they're all different paths up the same mountain that's leading to the same place, then you really haven't studied all world religions because all other world religions teach the exact opposite. It says, if you obey, and if you do a bunch of things, jump through a bunch of hoops and check off the checklist, then maybe your deity or whoever that you're following after will accept you, maybe. Hopefully you'll do enough. Christianity says the exact opposite. It says you and I couldn't possibly be good. So God sent his son Jesus to be good for us. Therefore, I'm accepted through Christ. And now given that position, I don't have to do what is right. I want to do what is right. See, this question is so important because if Jesus really did pay it all, how does that work in the day-to-day? -day? Like, does God just issue us some sort of a divine visa card? And he's like, hey man, just run up the bill, 
do whatever you want. I'll pay the balance at the end of the day. In other words, I've accepted Jesus. I'm going to live like hell and still get heaven. In an even sicker twist, Paul says some might even assume that if God gets more glory for showing us grace, well, then let's do him a favor by sinning more. So that way God even gets more glorified. And here's Paul's answer to that question. Verse 2. Of course not. Actually, uh, this is the strongest way to say no in the Greek. It's kind of like, like I get this. Like I've got teenage daughters in the house. And like there's different ways they can say no to me. Like if I ask them to do something, and if they, they maybe give a very respectful no. Like, no, Father, I don't want to do that. Or they can go, uh, no. Right, so I always know <laughs> that if they bring out that, like that's a really emphatic way of saying, I don't want to do this. This is Paul saying, uh, no. Right? And he goes, since we have, now he's going to bring out these two phrases that I think are so important for our understanding of this topic. Died to sin. What in the world does that mean? How can we live in it? Now, this is the root of the question that we asked earlier. If Paul says we have died to sin when we believe, confess, repent, and are baptized, why does sin still feel very much alive within me? Why do I still lose my temper, still struggle with lust, still gossip about others, even though I know I'm doing it? Why do I still fall back into addiction? And then once again, this even gets into the root of what the world has so much against Christians. Well, you guys are just a bunch of hypocrites. You say you believe something, but you're living just like the rest of us. And for many of us, we'd have to go, yeah, we kind of agree with you. And maybe you thought at one point in your life, you would no longer wrestle with this sin issue. You've been following after Jesus for one year, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years. And you're like, why, am I, why is this sin issue still resurfacing itself in my life? I remember uh, when this became very real to me, I was in my mid-20s and I went to a men's conference and they had us um, kind of uh, divide up into groups at the conference. And it was a bunch of young guys and there was one older sage in our group. This man was in his 70s, uh, white hair, wrinkles, just oozed wisdom and Christ-likeness. And man, we were just drinking in everything he had to say to us over this weekend. And we were talking about the subject of our thought life and purity and lust. And I remember one of the young guys in the group turns to this older sage and says, at what point in your life did you stop wrestling with lust? And I'll never forget what he said. He looked back at us and he smiled and he goes, well, I'll let you know. <laughs> and I remember my mind just blew. I was like, I was simultaneously encouraged at his vulnerability and discouraged at the exact same time. Because I thought, well, I thought maybe by the time that I'd get his age, it wouldn't be a struggle. I thought that whenever I got married, it wouldn't be a struggle anymore. And yet here's the deal. It's like, this is going to be a decades long battle with sin and temptation. So if, now, you, now we're talking about lust there, but that's not what this sermon is about. We're talking about all kinds of sin struggles and issues. Maybe lust isn't your deal, but maybe anger is, or maybe pride is, or maybe greed is. And you're like, why does this thing keep coming to the surface? What does died to sin practically mean? I think there's a spiritual meaning and then there's the practical sort of day-to-day -day biological sort of fleshing of this out. I think the way that we get to the answer to that is by sort of deduction, saying, well, here's what it doesn't mean, right? And if you're taking notes, maybe here's just a couple of things. Um, died to sin doesn't mean that as Christians, we will no longer want to sin. We'll still want to sin. It doesn't mean that we've lost all interest in sinning. It's fun. You know, cutting corners, getting what you want, like it, it appeals to our flesh in a very real way. We are imperfect human beings still under the curse of Adam. But at the same time, under the grace of Jesus, the already, but not yet. One commentator says this, he's, when he talks about died to sin, he's not talking about the literal impossibility of sin, but the moral incongruity of it. It is out of alignment with who Jesus died for us to be, your identity. So it's kind of like when your car is out of alignment, it'll still go down the road, but you'll chew up the tires. It's the same thing when it comes to personal sin in our lives. Paul is gonna take the rest of chapter six 
and come back or join in because next week we'll also cover chapter seven, which is the second part of this. And he's going to try to unpack this for us. But if I could take a stab at just um, um, a sentence of clarity, I might say this. The moment you give your life to Jesus, you are no longer under the reign, or we could say ruling power of sin. Remember chapter five, verse 21. Sin reigns, grace also reigns all the more. Sin still has power, but it no longer has its dictates over you. If I could maybe use this illustration, I, I'm a big World War II buff. I like any, any documentary or book on World War II, like I'll read it or watch it. And maybe this might be helpful for some of you. In World War II, when the Allied forces took control of Berlin, the power of the Axis countries was broken. So for all practical purposes, the war was over. Hitler had been defeated. Yet at the exact same time, there were still pockets of German soldiers roaming throughout the countryside, controlling small towns, terrorizing people, but the Nazi regime wasn't in power anymore. And Paul is saying the exact same reality is true in this spiritual war that we are in. God has won the victory. Satan is defeated. Grace overrides the reign of sin in our lives, but sin still exists. Why? Because you are not all soul and you're not all body. You are a soul in a body that is very much under the curse of sin. And Satan has been defeated, but he's still terrorizing people. And we are still in a fight, except your motives for the fight have changed. You're not fighting to justify yourself in God's eyes. You're fighting to become more like God. I, I like how Tim Keller once again puts this. I'm sorry I didn't give you time to clap. I've just got way too much content and I've got 13 minutes and 12 seconds to go. All right, so, so Tim Keller describes it this way. He goes, he goes, died to sin doesn't mean that sin is no longer within you or that it has no power and influence within you. It does, but sin no longer can dictate you. Though you may give into it and the Bible predicts that you will, like you don't have to give into it. You've died to it. It can be dead to you. I love how John puts it in 1 John. He says, I write this so that you won't sin. And then right after that, he goes, but when you do, you have a mediator with God the Father. God isn't expecting you to be sinless. He's expecting you to be repentant. He's expecting you to be authentic. He's expecting you just to say, it's me again. And to take off the mask and to stop hiding. And there is grace there at every step. Verse 3. Have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we may also live new lives. And right here, he's just talking about that fourth thing that I just mentioned a few moments ago, about how we respond to the free gift of God's grace. Baptism has been so confusing, confused by so many people. I honestly think that there's a deceiver behind it that's trying to confuse us on this. Listen, it is not a work that you do to earn salvation. It is something that displays your salvation. And the reason why we baptize by immersion, and I know many of you maybe have experienced sprinkling. I'm not saying that you've done anything wrong or that that's bad, but I am saying that the New Testament word is baptizo, which means to dip, plunge, immerse, or hold them under till they bubble. All right, that's what that means. All right, so what that means is it's symbolizing your death. You're being buried with Christ and coming up and resurrected as a new creation in Christ. Why? Because God knows we need something tangible to do in order for it to get cemented into our hearts. There has never been anybody that I've ever baptized that was totally casual about it. They were nervous. They were anxious. They were afraid. They wanted to throw up. And I was totally fine with it. Why? This is a big deal. You're putting to death your old self, being resurrected to walk as a new creation. Can I, just, can I just say to you, every now and then I'll, I'll talk to somebody and I'll be like, hey man, tell me your story. And they'll say something along these lines. Well, I've just always believed in God. I've just always kind of followed Jesus. And, and hear my heart on this. I'm not doubting the sincerity of their belief. I'm not doubting their salvation or their relationship with God. But I am saying that um, has there ever been a tangible marker in your life where you've declared your allegiance to Jesus? And if not, there should be. See, the, the biblical way to respond is not praying a prayer, raising your hand, walking an aisle, texting Jesus to 87221, serving in kids' ministry, right? M maybe. All right, maybe kids' ministry will get you in. <laughs> Pediatric purgatory, all right? But no, it's, a, it's believe, confess, repent, be baptized. It is simply an act 
of obedience. In the book of Acts, when Peter preached the lights out, it said at the very end that there were people there that were cut to the heart. They said, what do we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized. And if you have not, I want to urge you to do so. In fact, um, last hour, we had five unplanned baptisms. Paul goes on and he says, since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. That word united is a horticultural term. It's like when you take branches off one tree and you graft them into another tree. And when you accept Christ, the spirit takes the dead branch of your life, it grafts it into the living root of Jesus Christ, the vine, and his power starts to flow into you. This is why trying to overcome sin in your life, you just empower it through willpower. Okay, you're just trying to white knuckle it. You just give it all the more power. It's only when you begin to um, abide in Christ that his power helps you overcome that. Verse six, we know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might, can you say these words out loud with me together at all of our campuses and online, lose its power in our lives. He says, that is what has happened. You, and you might say, you might push back, you might object and say, well, wait a second. I think I've done all that. Aaron, when you talk about the four things, I could finish the sentence before you said it. I've accepted Christ. I, I've confessed. I've repented. I've been baptized. And yet I still struggle. I still mess up all the time. Like if verse six is true, then why does it feel like sin still has so much power over my life? It's because verse six has explained the spiritual reality and yet there is still a biological, physiological thing that we've got to do in obedience. In fact, um, the theological word for this is sanctification. So there's justification. You're justified in God's sight. And now you spend the rest of your days in sanctification, trying to unlearn all those sin patterns that used to clean your clock. So here's what it means to like get out from under the power of sin. It means a couple of things. If you're taking notes, I will no longer tolerate it. Like, I'm not going to overlook it. I'm not going to just shrug it away. Go, well, you know, nobody's perfect. I'm not going to premeditate it. Have you ever done that? Divine Visa card. I'm going to sin next week, week from Tuesday. And I know that God will forgive me because, you know, that's like sort of what he does. I'm going I'm to no longer excuse it and just kind of go, well, you know, in comparison to other people, it's not all that bad. And I'm not going to no longer try in making progress to overcome it. I'm just going to say, well, this is just the way that I am. Once again, I keep coming back to this gold mine that is Tim Keller. And he says, Paul is not saying that Christians cannot commit individual acts of sin or that we don't struggle with habitual sin, but that we cannot go on abiding connecting in the realm of sin. We won't continue to deliberately take part in the same sin without feeling convicted or remorseful. In other words, conviction is a gift. Conviction is a good thing. Now, differentiate it from shame. Conviction is, hey, this is what I've done that is out of alignment with who I am in Christ. Shame is, oh, well, this is who I am. The Holy Spirit will never do that. The Holy Spirit's urging you to turn and actually live up to, get in alignment with who Jesus died for you to be. Conviction is the Holy Spirit putting on the brakes. And it's a really good thing. In fact, I would say that when you no longer feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, that's a big red flag. In fact, the uh, Bible says the only unforgivable sin is blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. What that practically means is you, the Holy Spirit puts on the brakes, convicts you, and you tell the Holy Spirit to take a hike. Here's the thing, he's a gentleman, he will. And when that happens, your heart hardens, and then you no longer see it as sin, you no longer feel the pumping of the brakes, and God, it's not that God can't or is unable or doesn't have the power to forgive, it's that you no longer want it. That's why it's the unforgivable sin. Paul goes on in verse six and he goes, we are no longer Slaves to sin, I'm gonna unpack what he means by that here in just a few moments. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin, meaning that it no longer reigns over us. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should 
consider yourselves to be, that's the way you see yourself. It's an accounting term. So you should also consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. This is the question of your identity. And we live right now in a culture that is obsessed with it. So we try to identify with something that sort of gives our life purpose. And right here, he says, you should consider yourself dead to your sin and alive with Christ because this is how God considers us. You, you don't formulate your own identity. God gives it to you. And he says, we should consider ourselves dead to sin, which means in that moment in which we are tempted, we recognize who we are. And God infuses his power to help us overcome that temptation. So instead of living out of my shame and my desires and my pride, I will live up to who Jesus died for me to be. In other words, change begins literally with how you see yourself. And that is not self-actualization. That is not self-help. That is the gospel. And last week, if you were here, I talked to you about how Jesus was led out into the desert to be tempted by Satan. And at the very beginning of every one of Satan's temptations, he starts with an attack on Jesus' identity. Have you ever noticed that? He says, if you are the son of God, when God had already declared that Jesus was, what's he doing? He knows that if he can get Jesus to, um, if he can weaken Jesus' understanding of his identity, he can weaken Jesus to his core. And that is the pattern for how the power of sin works in our lives. Satan will do whatever he can to get your eyes off of your new identity in Christ by bringing up your past, by bringing up your addictions, by bringing up your attractions, by bringing up your behavior. He is not just a deceiver and a liar. He's an accuser. I go, man, who do you think you are anyway? walking into that church, raising up your hands during the song service. Those people only knew what you'd done last week. They'd realize how much of a fraud you are. Look how badly you've messed up. You'll never make any progress. You might as well just give up. Actually, why don't you take all that frustration, aim it at God, get mad at him. And the moment you start believing all that, he already has you. That is the power of sin. And being alive to God through Christ means believing what God has declared about you even when you don't feel it even when you're not quite sure how it all works. That's what faith is. You are fully righteous in his sight. You are dead to sin. It no longer has power over you because resurrection power resides within you. And as you believe that, he releases the power of new life into you. That's what Paul's driving at in 1 Corinthians 10. Two minutes, five seconds, four, three. All right, so... So what Paul's driving at in 1 Corinthians 10, he goes, hey man, hey man, God is faithful. He's solid and secure. He's unchanging. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he'll show you a way out so you can endure. Their temptation is not sin. Noticing an attractive person is not sin. Being tempted to... to uh, Lose your temper, not, not a sin. It's in that split second of a decision, God, you, where you pray, not how can I do this and get away with it, but God, can you provide a way out of it? And right there, he promises a way. And if you mess up, all, you, all that is required is just transparency and a willingness to say, man, I messed up and I don't want to do that any again. Now, that's not who I am in Christ. And his grace covers you so that you can keep going. I love, uh, one of my favorite things to do is to watch um, The Voice uh, with my girls, that, that reality show where it's a singing show. And, and uh, basically the judges are all turned around and then somebody starts to sing. And then if they like the sound of the voice, they turn their chair around and invite them to be part of their team. This is sort of like, like before you even started singing, God flipped his chair around. He's like, I mean, it's not based on the tune. It's based on my love for you. Paul says, man, do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. And I can fill in here because every time you do, it just makes it easier. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have new life. 
So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. Which, by the way, this is something that you can actually rehearse to yourself in the moment of temptation. And some of you, maybe not too happy with this, once again, kind of objecting, saying, wait a second, won't there be people that'll take advantage of that? And Paul's going to take one more round at this, verse 15, and he's going to go, well then, since God's grace has set us free from the law, does that mean we can go on sinning? The technical term for this mindset is antinomian. And the word really is not all that important for you to remember. This is not going to be on the final exam to get you into heaven or anything like that. But it may be helpful because this is what Paul's talking about. It comes from two root words, anti, which means against, nomos, which means law. And it's this idea, antinomian, the belief that there are no moral laws that God confines us to. So just live however you want. It takes a biblical teaching to an unbiblical conclusion. The biblical teaching is that we are no longer required to obey the law as a means of salvation. Following the rules will never get you in. Yes, Jesus has fulfilled all those righteous requirements for us. However, instead of using that as an excuse to do whatever we want, this should motivate us to cultivate righteousness in our lives because we've been transformed. In other words, we spend so much time focusing on going to heaven and not enough time saying, are we going to be the kind of people that will enjoy heaven? Because you're going to be with Jesus for eternity. So this idea of not, I'm not trying to just do what I can to get in. I'm actually trying to become someone like this short life is preparing you for eternity. Therefore, all the trials and the difficulties and the struggles and the suffering, you can look at that as why would God allow this? Or you can look at this as God is actually trying to build up my character for all of eternity. Following the commandments. Hey, at this point, it's on you because I'm negative two minutes at this point. All right. So, so following the Ten Commandments are not a condition of relationship. They are a confirmation of one. You don't need to obey the 10 to be saved, but, you, but by striving to obey the 10, you'd be free. Free from what? All the sin struggles that are enslaving me. I guarantee you right now, you look at some things that have meant a lot to you that you've lost in your life. You trace it all the way back. It's because you gave into a sin struggle. And at first it was fun. It gave you short-term gratification. In the long run, it enslaved you. It took away the things that you love the most. And so Paul answers this question once again in verse 15. He goes, man, of course not. Don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? And you can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. But thank God, once you were slaves of sin, but now you wholeheartedly obey this teaching we have given you. Now you are free from your slavery to sin and you have become slaves to righteous living. Paul is saying an invitation to follow Jesus is an invitation to go to war. Not with culture, not with your neighbor, and not with other religions, but with your personal sin. Dying to sin does not mean that we will never be tempted or ever sin again. It means that I am going to recognize who Jesus died for me to be, and I'm no longer going to be ruled by it. It is a resolve that says sin no longer reigns in me. What does that practically look like? It means that I'm no longer going to premeditate my sin. I'm not going to plan it. I'm not going to sin without conviction. I sin. I'm immediately going to keep in step with the Spirit. I'm going to recognize it. I'm not going to be defensive. I'm not going to hide it. I'm just going to own it. I'm not going to normalize my sin. I'm not going to go, hey, man, that's true for you, not for me. This is just kind of who I am. It's like, no, no, no. Like, who... Like, who did Jesus die for me to be? And my attitude will be that I will resist and rebel against it. And in those moments when I stumble and I fall and I give in, and you will, you humble yourself. And you repent of it. And you run back to the grace of God that he gives you in Jesus, confident that right there in that moment, he is shaping you to become more and more like his son. This is, I read a book when I was in college that was a turning point for me. The title was called The Pursuit of of holiness. And I love the title. It's not like, like holiness is just like, bam, given to you. Holiness is a pursuit that will go on for every decade of your life. And holiness, if I could break it down, would be death to sin through identification with Christ. 
That's recognizing Jesus went to a cross for you, so I'm going to crucify my sin. I'm going to identify with him in the waters of baptism. It also means death to self day by day through imitation of Christ. And it's more than just a gimmicky little bracelet. What would Jesus do? It's this idea of I want more and more of Jesus until it is Christ alone. A resolve that says God reigns in me, so sin will no longer reign over me. And when I fall into it and when I mess up and I will, I see it for what it is and I turn from it and I make things right and I make a resolve not to fall again. Verse 19, because of the weakness of your human nature, I'm using the illustration of slavery to help you understand all this. Previously, you let yourselves be slaves to impurity and lawlessness, which led ever deeper into sin. Now you must give yourselves to be slaves to righteous living so that you will become holy. Verse 20, when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the obligation to do right. And what was the result? You are now ashamed of the things you used to do, the things that end in eternal doom. But now you're free from the power of sin and become slaves of God. Now you do those things that lead to holiness and result in eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. An author by the name of uh, Leslie Jameson set out to write a personal memoir on the power of addiction. And the title of it was called The Recovering. And she describes how addiction is sort of like a ghost that is just haunting the Western world. Like right now, everybody is addicted to something. Everyone, whether it's a substance or whether it's just somebody else's approval. We're all addicted to something. It's the way that we nurse our insecurities and our incompleteness. And she said all addictions, when you boil it down, reduce itself to the same cycle that enslaves us. It just, it just repeats itself over and over again in our lives, regardless of whatever it is you're addicted to. It's where you desire something and then you use something and then you repeat something. We call that addiction. The Bible calls that slavery. And this pattern will reap some sort of a result in our lives. Maybe not now, maybe not next week, but maybe when you're 50 or 60. I had a wise mentor tell me one time, he goes, hey man, the, the key to being joyful and having a fruitful life in your 50s and 60s is deal with all your junk in your 30s and 40s. Repent of it, work on it. Otherwise, it just stays in your heart and it yields some sort of result later on. See, the Bible was written in an agrarian society, which meant that they used a lot of agricultural metaphors. So vine and branches, seed and soil. And basically every time it talks about that, it says, hey, there's a small little thing like a seed. You put it into the ground. It's going to reap exponential impact. It's going to reap a whole, like a tomato seed, whole bunch of tomatoes. All right? Now, if the Bible were written today, it would likely use the idea of compound interest because more of us probably relate to that than we do agriculture. And I remember when Lindsay and I first sat down with a financial advisor after we were married, he were walking us through the, con the, the principle of compound interest. And he said, hey, listen, it's not so much the amount that you need to set aside for retirement. It's do it as early as you can because compound interest will eventually kick in. Not after year one, not after year 10, Maybe not even after you're 20, but man, 25, 30, 35, 40 years, like that thing will start to exponentially increase at a rapid rate. And what is true financially is even more true spiritually. And every time we give in to flesh's desire to sin, we plant something within the soil of our hearts that starts off small, it takes root, it grows, and it yields some sort of a harvest, AKA the life you have. Now, fortunately, the opposite is also true. In that moment of temptation, you sow to the Spirit, you end up yielding a harvest of Christ-like character. And now, this is where we get to the very practical reason why once you've given your life to Christ, sin still keeps resurfacing itself in your life and it is a continual battle. John Mark Comer writes about this in his book, Live No Lies. He talks about Hebe's Law, named after Dr. Donald Hebe, uh, who's a neuroscientist, and he states this, cells that fire together, wire together. Translation, every time you think or do something, it becomes easier to think or do the same thing again. And the more you repeat that process, the harder it is to break free from that self-perpetuating cycle. 
And so through repetition, thoughts and actions get into our brain's habit system, which is either your best friend or your worst enemy, depending upon how you sow into it. It gets encoded into your, the wiring of your brain. In other words, you develop these grooves in your brain called neuropathways, which makes it really, really difficult to forget how to ride a bike. It also explains why maybe you can't stop looking at porn because it's just been grooved into the neural pathways. And every time we give into sin, we etch a neural pathway into the grooves of our brain. And from there, it begins to shape our muscle memory until we end up in the New Testament's definition of slavery or what Augustine calls the shackles of gratification. So let me leave you with this definition. Our character, your character is merely the collection of your choices. So where are you headed? And Paul says you can be controlled by the spirit of God, the way you see yourself, or you can be controlled by the desires of the flesh. So understand you're saved by grace through faith from that position of security. Now you can begin the process of sanctification, which is the theological way of saying, carve new pathways in your brain's thoughts. And that hap that's why reading your Bible daily is so important. It's not because God's gonna quiz you when you go to heaven. It's because you're trying to develop new neural pathways. That's why God says, hide your word in, in my heart so that I won't sin against God in the moment of temptation. When I was in college, I had a Old Testament history professor who from my perspective at the time, seemed like he was already like 105 years old. Um, and he was a sweet man, incredible teacher. And I'll never forget the day in class when he shared with us that he had had some sort of a diagnosis, like some sort of a dementia diagnosis. And so he knew that at, there was gonna come a day when he would sort of lose his mental capabilities. And he told all of us in class, he said, I've always memorized scripture my whole life, but he said, I'm more diligent at it than ever before because I know a day is coming pretty quickly when I'm gonna lose my mental uh, capabilities. And he said, I don't want to come out of my mouth um, the darkness that is in my heart. He goes, I'm trying to hide as much of God's word in my heart so that one day when I no longer uh, am aware of what I'm saying, what comes out is good, right, and true. That's what we're talking about. So it's not an issue of following the rules to get you into heaven. It's the issue of since you are free in Christ, who do you wanna be? And sin enslaves, but God sets you free. And if you have not received that free gift, I want you to do so today. Father, we come to you right now. We thank you that your grace outpaces our sin, not so that we would be emboldened to keep on sinning, but so that we might die to sin, have the hope of heaven and grow to look more like you. So God, meet us in this place. Give us the courage to respond. Give us the strength to endure. In Jesus' name, and everybody says, amen.